And what we're talking about these two weeks is really our mission statement, to introduce others to Jesus and follow him together. Last week, if you missed it, you can go and listen online, but last week we talked about how our mission statement is foundationally undergirded, not by the mechanics or the activity that we do, the behavior that we do, the language, but it's actually undergirded by something that I can't impart to you. I can't make you feel it. It's it's undergirded by the reality of how we feel based on how Christ feels about us and how he feels about others. Does this make sense? In other words, our mission and the ways that we word it, and we're going to talk about all those mechanical things here in a second, the actual language, and if you're really good with your memory, and if you've been here any length of time, you should just memorize these words and do them, and that's really important. But more important than doing the actual activities is the mindset that you have. If you remember last week, I talked about how I went into, uh, on a vacation with my wife, and we went to Colorado, and there was this one day where at night we went outside and there were the stars were all around us and we felt the magnitude and the beauty of God. And I told you how I can take you to that same place and you can see those same stars, but I can't make you feel the magnitude and beauty of God. In the same way that our mission of introducing people to Jesus and following him together, you can want to see that happen, but to have that really happen, you know it has to happen first in your life You have to passionately follow and love Jesus, and you have to feel the way about people, the way that God feels about people, the way that Christ feels about people. When you see them hurting, you don't look at them as people that you don't want to associate because they might contaminate you and your family. You look at them with the heart of God and think with compassion and love for them. And that's what undergirds the words that we're going to talk about this morning. But we still have to talk about exactly the behaviors that we're going to talk about. And so that's what this week is all about. If you'd look at your seat in front of you, I want you to pull out this card. And we're going to be going through it this morning, our little About Us card. It describes in about a 20-second read about everything that is important to us as a church. But this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take you this card through this card, and I'm going to establish why we believe these things, hopefully from Scripture. I'm going to show you from Scripture why we believe these things, and I'm going to talk to you as bluntly and as concisely and as clearly as I can with my limited ability about why we do what we do here. Does this make sense? All right, that's what we're going to do. Our mission, as you see in this card, is to introduce others to Jesus and follow him together. This mission is rooted in the words that Jesus gave his disciples in Matthew chapter 28. So why don't you turn there with me? Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. The text is found, if you're using one of our Bibles, the blue copy in front of you in your seat, it's found on page 811. So would you turn there with me, and would you look at the text as I read it out loud? Now, before I read it, let me preface with this. Jesus was a man who was also God, who came to earth. That in itself is mind-blowing. He lived 33 years on earth. For the first 30, he grew up as a boy and grew into manhood, and we have very little data within the gospel stories of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of what he did. At the age of 30, he began to go throughout the Judean countryside and spread the message of the kingdom of God, the good news of the kingdom of God, and to heal and to teach and to proclaim that message. 
After three years of ministry, he was wrongfully accused. He was crucified by the Romans at the uh, demands of the Jews, and he was dead. Now, Jesus, in his three years, built into 12 disciples, very intentionally and very purposefully. At the time of Jesus' death, all of his disciples had abandoned him in fear and in doubt. In fact, none of the disciples were even present at Jesus' crucifixion with one exception, the Apostle John. And if history tells us anything accurately uh, outside of the Bible, which it often does, uh, history teaches us that all 12 of the disciples were martyred for their faith. In other words, at the time of Jesus' death, none of the disciples followed Jesus anymore. After Jesus' resurrection, in the words we are about to read, all 12 of those men were willing to give their life and did give their life in the name of Jesus and for the message that he was and taught. The one exception was John. The Apostle John was actually not martyred for his faith according to church tradition, but he was, uh, they did try to do so. They put him in a pot of burning oil, a big pot of burning oil. That's what history tells us, and he somehow miraculously survived and was exiled to an island. So he was not sitting in a hot tub with his soulmate. Yeah? Does this make sense? He did not have it easy. That was a Napoleon Dynamite reference, but it was probably unrealistic to expect anybody to remember it. Now, what's going on here is this. Jesus gives the disciples the mission that they are to fulfill. He gives them their mission. He gives them it as a mandate, not as an option, as a mandate of what the church is meant to be and what the church is meant to do. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Here in Matthew 28, Jesus gives the mission of the church. He gives it in three verbal phrases, and they're really easy to pick out if you look at the text. He says, you are to make disciples, you are to baptize those disciples, and you are to teach them to obey everything. These three verbal phrases have two core concepts or two ideas, evangelism and discipleship. What I mean by this is introducing others to Jesus or following him to get, and following him together. In other words, Jesus gave the mission to the church. It is not optional that we are to introduce people to Jesus. We are to show the world the hope and the beauty of Jesus. And once we've been captured by that hope and beauty, we are to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus. And then we're to spend our whole life in the pursuit of knowing him in a deeper way. That is the mission of the church. And it is not optional. Many businesses, and the church isn't a business, but just go with me for a minute. Many businesses have the option to create the kind of business that they want to create. So, right, Apple makes computers that are easy to use. IBM and PCs make computers that are easy to buy, right? That's the way it kind of works. They have a different philosophy that they're trying to do. 
I don't know anything about computers, so I could be completely wrong. Now, here's the deal. The church is meant to do these two things. It is not optional. We don't have the option to try to do something else. The church has a twofold mission. Neither is more important. They are both equally important, and we have to try to merge them, and they're difficult to merge, to introduce people to Jesus and to follow him together. As a pastor, and I know our elders, I know Chris, I know our staff, feels the same level of responsibility. As a pastor and as church leaders, it is our responsibility to make decisions that we believe will best help us to accomplish introducing others to Jesus and following him together. We may not always make the best decisions. Sometimes our talent, sometimes our foresight all hold us back. But we are to try with everything that we have to introduce people to Jesus and follow him together. Did your parents ever have you play baseball? Did you ever play baseball? My dad had me play baseball, and I liked baseball. I played until about eighth grade, and then I gave up. But nonetheless, my dad taught me one of the most important things about hitting a baseball. Well, there's two, right? One is keep your eye on the ball. But the second thing my dad always taught me, and probably your dad did too, was to don't go down looking, right? Just swing the bat. Make an effort. Try to make contact. And I've thought about that a lot as it pertains to church. I don't think we'll get every decision right, but it is our job as church leaders to hold these two tensions in somewhat of balance and to try to swing at introducing people to Jesus and following him together. You know, in a church, no matter how big or how small it is, there's all kinds of different opinions on how things should be as it pertains to that, isn't it? About how the music should be, about how the speaking should be, about how the decorations should be, about all kinds of different things. And sometimes I think, sometimes uh, people might think, why don't the church leaders simply take a poll, figure out what the majority of us want, and then just do it? Does this make sense? I'm smiling because I like this illustration. Why don't you just be the instrument of our desire, right? But see, that is not the calling of what leadership is meant to do when it comes to the church. The calling of leadership as it pertains to the church is to make decisions to best enable introducing and following. And you know what always happens in the church world? And it's really easy to see. What always happens in the church world is that churches will drift away from introducing and they drift towards following. And why is this? This is so easy to understand. Because the majority of the people in our churches are people who follow Jesus. And people who follow Jesus, the longer they follow Jesus, the less they are able to understand those who don't follow Jesus. Some of that's good, some of it's not. And the longer we follow Jesus, the more in love we get with the way and the preferences that we have. And the people who follow Jesus who attend church will tell me and tell leadership what we do that they do or do not like. But you know what happens? And this is so important. The people who do not follow Jesus, the people that you and I may be trying to reach out to, that we're praying for, that we're investing in, we may get an opportunity to have them come to church one time. And if they come and they don't like something, you know what happens? They do not give me feedback. 
They don't say, you know, I wish I would have had more jokes or I wish the music was louder. They just don't come back, right? And so leadership, as it pertains to the church, is all about swinging the bat at introduce and follow. And that means that we have to take into account, we need to take into account those who have no voice and we need to create an environment in our churches that unchurched people have space in, that people who are not used to going to church can find Jesus. Because we believe Jesus to be the hope of the world. But since in any church situation, the majority of the audience is probably people who follow Jesus, not all, but the majority, I want to say a word to you. In this process of sacrificing, in this process of giving up your preferences, there is this wonderful paradox that I believe, not just on an experiential level, but I believe it so firmly in my heart and my mind on a biblical level. And it is this truth that when we lose our life, we save it. When we give of ourselves of others to others, we do not find ourselves wanting, but we find ourselves filled. Does this make sense? This is not just something that I've come up with to make things more convenient for myself. It's something that the Apostle Paul talked about. And I have to have you turn there in your Bibles and look at the passage with your eyeballs just so that you believe that it is there. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22 and 23. And I want you to turn there. If you're following along in our Bible, it's on page 929. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. It's a very short passage. The passage begins with Paul uh, giving a defense of his right as an apostle, that he is one who has the very words of God to speak. And then the Paul, Paul, who has just established how he has been chosen by God, in, in some sense, not in a prideful way, but how important he is, after he has established this, he now says that he is free, but now he's going to tell us about how he uses his freedom. Follow along with me, verse 22. To the weak I became weak to win the weak, for I have become all things to all met people, so that by all possible means I might save some. This is all about adjusting so that those who do not know Christ could have a chance to see his love and his beauty. To the weak I became weak to win the weak, I have become all things to all people. For the motivation, for the the possibility that I might by some means save some. But this giving up of his preferences, this adjusting to the needs of other people, does not have the result in Paul's life of making him feel disillusioned and bitter. See it? Verse 23. For I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. For when we give of our preferences, when we adjust our lives to the lives of others, something wonderful and paradoxical happens. We find ourselves transformed. We find ourselves enhanced. When we make ourselves lesser, we actually don't become lesser. We become greater. When we decrease, we don't actually decrease, we increase. And all of this is like this reverse way of working in the system, in the economy of God, you know, in the way things work in God's world. I become all things to all men by, so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do this that I might share in the sake, I might share in the gospel 
so that I may share in its blessings. This message of the gospel is the same message that Jesus is telling his disciples to go into the known world to share in Matthew chapter 28. To go out to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them to teach them to obey. Jesus sends out the disciples because Jesus himself is a message that transforms this world. Because in Jesus, the story of who he was, not story in a fictional way, but in a real way, the story of who he was and what he did and what he has given to us, not what we earn, but what he has given to us, is a story that transforms reality. And when we come into contact with that, we come into the contact with the beauty of who Jesus is and what he did. And when we come into contact with that, we come into contact with the hope of the gospel. This morning, I want to remind you of the gospel. And I want to do it really quickly. And I want to remind you that the gospel has three dimensions to it. Three equally important dimensions that we must keep all in balance. These three dimensions are as follows. That there is a historical dimension to the gospel, the story of good news of Jesus Christ. And the historical dimension is that salvation comes not through good advice that Jesus taught, but it comes through his reality as a person of who he was. That he did something on our behalf in history, died in our place for our sins, so that he might give us, on the basis of that death and resurrection, salvation as a free gift. Not that we earn, but that we receive. There is a historical dimension to the gospel. For we are saved on the basis of what Jesus did, not simply on the basis of what he taught. He taught us about what he did. Does this make sense? Historical dimension. There is also a personal dimension to the gospel, isn't there? That when we put our faith in the hope of the gospel, we are placing it that hope and that faith in a historical reality of who Jesus was, but we are also experience in the gospel the transformation of our personal life. There's a personal transformation that is born out of the hope of the gospel. The gospel transforms us. I talk about these all the time. It transforms us really in five key and critical ways. For in the gospel, we find that God, through Christ, accepts us. He accepts us just the way we are, that we don't have to put ourselves in position to be accepted by him, that he accepts us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. Does this make sense? He accepts of us. He approves of us. He wants us. He approves of us. He offers us new life in Christ. For anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, Paul says. He gives us freedom from guilt, and some of us have lived in guilt for years. Some of you maybe are psychopathic and you never feel guilt and should. <laughs> but Jesus offers us freedom from our guilt, the guilt that we should not feel. I thought my nacho one was a lot better than that one, to be honest with you. But you like that one, so that's good. So he offers freedom from guilt. And lastly, he offers us Intimacy and love. How many of us have tried to find intimacy and love? Some of us do. 
Some of us look to our parents for years that don't give it. Some of us have looked to our spouses. Some of us look to our friends and don't find it. But in the gospel, we are personally transformed by how Christ accepts us, approves of us, offers us new life, freedom from guilt, and how he offers us his love and his intimacy, no strings attached. Yeah? But there's not only a historical dimension, there's not only a personal dimension, there's also a kingdom dimension. The historical dimension answers what I believe. The personal dimension answers the question, who am I? And the kingdom dimension answers the question, what do I do? For the kingdom dimension of the gospel transforms our purpose and meaning in life. Our purpose and meaning in life. For we see in the reality of Jesus that Jesus was not just good news that when you die, you'll go somewhere better. Jesus was good news that, yes, when you die, you'll go somewhere better, but now is being transformed by the gospel, that you can transform reality right here and right now, imperfectly, impartially, impartially, but you can do it. For in the reality of Christ, when he came in his first coming, did you notice when you read the gospel accounts, the stories of Christ's life, that everywhere Christ went, things that were broken began to become healed? People that were broken were healed. The deaf heard, the lame walked, the blind saw. That relationships were restored. That everywhere that Jesus went, everything that he touched, healing followed. Because the kingdom of God is the reality of God. And where God's reality is, there is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. And one day, Christ will return, the Bible tells us, and we accept this by faith, and he will establish a kingdom where there is no end to his justice and beauty and to his glory. The Old Testament prophets describes it this way, there will be justice on the earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus describes it in Matthew 13, that the, <laughs> the justice of God will shine like the sun in the kingdom of my Father. You see, it's poetic but beautiful that God's justice comes to bear. These three dimensions, the historical, the personal, and the kingdom, are all what make up the good news of the gospel, and they're all essential. If you emphasize the historical dimension of the gospel without the personal and without the kingdom, he will simply be an ungracious fundamentalist who thinks you know everything and are right about everything. Have you ever met one of those? I was one, yeah? Trying not to be one, yeah? If you believe in the personal dimension of the gospel without the historical or without the kingdom dimension, you'll be too, earthly, you'll be too uh, heavenly minded, you'll be of no earthly good, and you'll just be pietistic, expressing platitudes all the time, but not doing anything in reality. And if you emphasize the kingdom aspect of the gospel at the expense of the historical and at the expense of the personal. You'll be schizophrenic doing good in this world, trying to earn your way without realizing the goodness and the grace of what God has done on your behalf and experiencing its life-transforming power for yourself. And you'll be giving and giving and you'll be sucked dry without anything to sustain you. That's beautiful sounding, isn't it? The gospel is all three of these dimensions, the historical, the personal, and the kingdom. And the three-dimensional gospel changes what we believe, it changes who we are, and it changes what we do. 
And for us to complete our mission, to introduce and follow, every single one of us, if we want to engage in the mission, must be at its heart first transformed by the beauty of Christ and then must be transformed in how we think about others by believing in and placing our trust in the hope of the gospel, the three-dimensional gospel that transforms history and person, our personhood and our purpose in life. And it is out of the gospel that changes us that we then have the ability to impact our mission. If you notice on this little black card, our vision statement is to help everyone engage in our mission through our discipleship pathway and our outreach strategy. In other words, we want every single person that's a part of our church to be involved with reaching people for Jesus and following Jesus more deeply. And these two concepts are inextricably wound together in a way that cannot be separated, although people try to. It's like a little five-year-old girl who accidentally got gum in her hair. To get that stuff out, you just got to cut it. You can't unwind. You can't unspool uh, in such a way that you can separate introducing from following. For the people who do them well must do them both. (laughs) We must be passionately desirous of seeing people see the reality and the beauty of Jesus. And we will only be effective at that, I promise you, if you yourself see the beauty and the reality of Jesus. Oftentimes, I'm going to get to this a little more in a bit, but oftentimes, don't we want our kids, you know, we, we have all these hopes and dreams for our kids, right? I want them to learn what I didn't know. I want them to eat in a way that I never ate. I want them to follow Jesus in a way I never did. I want them to have the opportunities I never had. But you know what the most important thing to giving something to your kids? It's so easy, and yet so many people miss it. Is you have to model that stuff. Why? Because you can't give what you don't have. You want your kids to eat better? I suggest you don't eat pizza every single night with a cheeseburger afterwards, right? Do you want your kids to be physically fit? I suggest you maybe walk every so often. Do you want your kids to follow Jesus? You have to passionately follow Jesus. That's more important than any other aspect that you can imagine when it comes to your kids in their spiritual walk. Even as we think of hiring a youth pastor, of course we want to hire someone who's going to connect with kids and love on your kids really well, right? But we want a guy who's going to partner with parents to help you guys because you guys are the ones, the parents of the kids are the ones who have the biggest say on how those kids follow Jesus for a lifetime. We all have a role in the church, but the parents, And so if we want to give something to someone else, we must first do it ourselves. If I want you to follow Jesus and introduce people to him, then I have a pretty big responsibility that starts first and foremost, don't I? To follow Jesus myself and to introduce and invest in people the way I encourage you to do it. Otherwise, we cannot succeed. But for the last 10 minutes, and this is the shorter part of my sermon, I just want to talk to you about the mechanics of it. I want to talk to you about how we encourage people to do, introduce, and follow. 
And it's really simple. And if you've been here, you've heard this before. If you haven't, you can just memorize. You practically will have these words memorized by the time I'm done and know how it works because it's so simple and hopefully clear and concise. First, our outreach strategy. How do we propose to introduce people to Jesus? Well, first off, the, way, the thing I think is the most dangerous or the, the, the biggest threat to us being able to do this well, introducing people to Jesus, is the reality that many in the church world, the longer they're in the church world, separate themselves from the world, right? And so the biggest threat to people being able to introduce people to Jesus would be that the people who follow Jesus don't have any relationships with those who don't follow Jesus. Does this make sense? The Bible and Jesus, both Old and New Testaments, and I'm not going to take you through a, a survey of this right now, but I'll give you some text to look at. The Bible and Jesus model and teach an engagement with our world that is very close without becoming uh, enticed by the things of the world that would take you away from Jesus. The model of the Bible when it comes to how we engage our culture and our world would be close connection, but closer connection to Jesus so that you are not pulled away and enticed away from the things of Jesus. In fact, if we are, if we are to be able to introduce people to Jesus well, we will have to invest and influence them by being close to them, by just offering genuine friendship. And I think there's a big fear in a lot of people's hearts and minds that what if I do this and those relationships pull me away? In fact, there's even some scriptural support for this. Remember this verse? Bad company corrupts good character. Do you see? Bad company corrupts good character. So we teach our kids, and it's often about our kids. We want you to make good friends, be with good people, and all this is true. But the Bible's reality is that we stay as close to people who don't know Jesus as possible, that we engage in their lives without being pulled away from Jesus. Do you see why this is so important for us? To have such an intimate and close, passionate love relationship with Christ for ourselves. Even for you, let's say for a second you're a pretty good person, a pretty good man or woman, and you do most of the right things right, you know? You don't do any of the big sins, the big things that you're not supposed to do, and you're following, and you're doing, you're not getting yourself in trouble. Nobody looks at you and thinks they should put you in jail. You're a delinquent, yeah? But yet, is it not true that for so often, for so many of us, and I'm not exempt from this, that our hearts and our minds are captured by things other than Christ. That we desire things more than we desire God. And when we do so, we are always vulnerable. <laughs> Poor thing. That stinks. Um, when we do so, we are always vulnerable. And so... The type of relationship that we have, we must strengthen our own faith, but we must engage. And we recommend people do it, and we try to encourage people to do it in three very, very, very simple ways. To pray for people who don't know Jesus, to invest in people's lives who don't know Jesus without a sales pitch, and to invite them to know Christ. What I mean by not a sales pitch goes something like this. A couple years ago, I was at an outdoor store looking at a kayak. 
there was a man who worked there that was very interested in me as I looked at this kayak until he found out I had no money to buy a kayak. Then he was not interested in me at all. Does this make sense? He was a salesman trying to sell me a boat. I had no money. That's a mathematical equation to never make a sale. So I didn't buy a boat. But his interest in me did not extend past my ability to buy a boat. You see? In the faith, it should never be this way ever, 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 ever. You see? Our investment in the lives of people is not to manipulate and coerce them to our way of thinking, but out of genuine love for them and genuine joy in the process of loving. We are not responsible for how people respond to the good news of Christ. We are responsible to love Christ. And if we love Christ, it is the most natural thing in the world to share about Christ. In the same way that you or I can talk about the things we care about to a complete stranger so, so easily. You have no problem talking to your friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, or complete strangers about your favorite sports teams, right? Mine lost last night to Notre Dame. I hate those guys. <laughs> we have no problem talking to them about our favorite foods and restaurants. We have no problem talking to them about our jobs, the bosses that we're struggling with. We have no problem talking with them about all kinds of crazy stuff. But when it comes to faith, people get silent or sometimes unnatural, and it shouldn't be this way. Let me actually show you a text. I'm going to do it quick. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. 1 Peter 3, 15. It's on page 982. This illustrates and explains what I'm telling you in the clearest way I know how. Notice what Peter says here about sharing our faith. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Do you see how our sharing of our faith starts with a reverence that we have for Christ ourselves, a love for Christ ourselves? And always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have through Jesus Christ. But do this with gentleness and respect. You see, when we share our faith, it is not a sales pitch. It is not impersonal, it's personal. It is not proselytizing where we force people to believe what we believe or we don't extend. It is simply announcing who we are and what we believe. And we are not responsible for how they respond, but we are responsible for how we share. And we are responsible for if we share. And I would propose to you that if you love Christ, if you are fallen in love with the beauty of Jesus, you can't help but talk about Jesus. So that's how we introduce people to Jesus. Second, how do we uh, follow Jesus together? We introduce to pray, invest, invite, and we follow Jesus together through doing five key activities that every Christian must do throughout their whole lifetime. You don't graduate out of these behaviors. You do them forever and ever, amen, and you see Jesus, and you fall more in love with Jesus as you do them. Worship, connect, serve, grow, share. For the Christian, it is imperative that we are involved with regularly worshiping God together, lifting our voices as a group, and saying to God, I love you, and I'm renewing my commitment to you. It is imperative that we connect with other Christians 
Not just that we sit next to him on a Sunday morning, that we connect our lives in meaningful relationships and meaningful ways to them. It is imperative that we serve one another, that we serve one another, that we give of ourselves for the benefit of another. It is imperative that we grow in our relationship through prayer and Bible study. There is no substitute for engaging with God through prayer and Bible study, through reading the word of God. And fifth, it is imperative that we share our faith, not simply as a way for people to understand the beauty of Jesus, but for us to understand in a more deep sense the beauty of Jesus. Our mission of Introduce and Follow is all about doing these activities, praying for those who don't know Christ, investing in them and inviting them, and falling more deeply in love with Christ through engaging with his church and with his people through Worship Connect Serve. Grow, share. This morning, it has been my goal to encourage and inspire you to engage in our mission for no personal benefit, but so that you might see the light and the love that is found in the beauty of who Jesus is and what he has done. And this morning, it is fitting as we have the, the elements, the symbols of Christ's broken body and his shed blood, it is fitting that as they dominate our view here in the front, uh, that we begin to reflect personally in our own hearts and minds. And I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, but as we pray and as you have a moment of reflection as you come forward to receive of the elements of Christ's broken body and his shed blood, and as you take them back to your seat and as you have the time to sit and reflect on what they symbolize and mean, I'm asking you and encouraging you to reflect on the beauty and the reality of Jesus. I'm asking you to evaluate your own heart and your own life and to ask yourself, am I falling more in love with Christ all the time? And is and am I sharing out of the love that I have for Christ with others? This is the perfect opportunity if there's a chance for you to have a correct self-correct and examine this morning to ask yourself, am I doing so? And if not, remember that the hope of the gospel is not that you're accepted if you do what is right. The hope of the gospel is that Christ already accepts and approves of you and that your ultimate joy can be found in following him. And if you are not finding the love and the beauty of Christ to captivate your heart and mind. Use this opportunity. One of the themes of the communion table is nourishment. Allow it to nourish your soul and rejuvenate your heart so that you might see Christ anew and afresh and so that you might be filled with joy that overflows to sharing in the process. Let me pray to you to that end.